Welcome to another episode of Shades Midweek, a podcast where we talk about theology, culture, and all things Shades. I'm Jonathan Hapes, and I'm coming to you from the Four Stream Studio, and I'm here with my good friends and the ever-beautiful pair, Brad Brown and John Mark Durow. How you doing, fellas? I'm doing well. I, am... I feel like that's always our response. We're well. <laughs> Are you really, Brad? I want to look into the eyes of your soul right now and ask you, all right, he's tearing up, y'all. He may not be well. Uh-oh. I'm just kidding. He's not tearing up. Yeah, I am a little overwhelmed because yeah. I've just started going back to school. I don't know if I should really announce that here because <laughs> I may drop out and then it's going to be embarrassing <laughs> to tell people. But Well, I'm glad I've never had an experience like that, Brad. But, you know, here I am. Coming from someone who's dropped out of two doctoral, not one, but two doctoral programs. <laughs> Talk about I a mean, double dose of humility. I may be quickly joining you. I've just started. Uh, no, you're going to make it. At UAB. I'm pursuing a master's in clinical mental health counseling. And so yes. right now it's all online. And so I'm just getting back into that world. Yeah. I graduated from... Beeson in 2012, so it's a, it's been a kick in the pants. Is that an expression? <laughs> sure. This yeah. this is a result, Shades. This is a result of Brad having worked with John Mark and I for right. multiple years. He's decided he, he needs yes a degree to help people with their mental health. <laughs> right. Exactly. Right. 100%. Exactly. It led me back to school. Um, but no, we're really excited about it. I have full faith and confidence that you're going to make it. You know why? It's not because you're amazing. It's because you have an amazing support team. That's true. My wife is pretty awesome. Supports. Okay, fine. Yeah, Jordan's great. Oh, yeah, sure. I was trying to brag on John Mark, but that's fine. It's whatever. Sure, sure, sure. Uh, Well, for our dedicated listeners, you uh, may know that we talked last time about the fact we'd lost just an incredible episode. It was straight fire. Just, Just so much gold just flowing out of Brad's mouth and John Mark. It was like a river of rainbows just being released from the the depths of his soul. I felt like I was outside of myself watching myself talk. Yeah, it was the most incredible Shades Midweek episode of all time. And we promised we would re-record that. We will. We will (laughs) keep that promise to you, Shades Valley, eventually. But not this week. Right. Um, Yeah, we're just... uh, We've got just such amazing content just backing up. Um, It's hard to decide what to talk about. Right, right. I mean, we really need to take shades midweek to seven days a week i mean it's really yeah, what needs to I happen think we could do it totally i think that would be we'd great. have to we'd have to rename it but right um <laughs> but anyway that episode will come at some point in the future but we do have other things that we're going to get to first and so just wanted to to let you know but before we do launch into the amazing content for this week mm. i think there's a confession that needs to be made <sighs> yeah yeah you know what i'm talking about yeah so uh, what I'm going to play for you guys here is a statement that I made on a October episode of Shades Midweek regarding who was going to play in the 2021 Super Bowl. So here's that. My early prediction is Chiefs in the Super Bowl potentially versus the Packers this year. That's my early, wow. my, my way too early prediction. Five okay. games into the NFL. You heard it here. Chiefs versus Packers in this year's Super Bowl. Okay. So, yeah, so I chose (laughs) the Chiefs and the Packers. Mm. The Chiefs and the Green Bay Packers. Way to go, Aaron Rodgers. To play 
in the 2021 Super Bowl, and we were so close. It was so close. We were so close, and I called it so early, even though Andrew has given me grief about picking the best teams. How easy is that? Okay, Andrew, I didn't hear you making any picks in October you know who's about re- what was going to happen in January. You, you know who's yeah. really happy about the results of that Packers game? is our guest from last week, Mr. Victor Garnier. Yep. Oh, that's right. What was What's his score? Pre- Do you remember his score prediction from last week? Uh, his was, I can't remember. We can probably insert it into the episode. But mine was thirty-one to twenty-seven Packers, and the Buccaneers won thirty-one to twenty-six. Mm. So I ha- literally had everything in reverse. So I think mm. you're. I think never you're, doubt Tom Brady. I guess at the end of the day <laughs> is true. Well, the lesson yes. that we've learned here. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. Jam, we will give you a chance to redeem yourself from a bad pick with a good pick. So what you, you got a, a pick for Jam's album of the week? I do. Jam's album. All right. I have to do it. I have to do it. You love to hear it, but I have to do it. Young Oceans has a new album out. I know this is no surprise to anyone that I would pick a Young Oceans album. I've already picked two of his albums for JM's album of the week in the past, so I had to go with his brand new album that came out, I believe it was on January 15th. It's called You Are Fullness. And it is a full-length record, and it is uh, some of his strongest work to date. Um, his last full-length was really, really strong and really good. Um, I think he's just... It's funny how you follow an artist for a while. I think he started putting music out in 11, 2011, 2012. But it is interesting and fun to watch how they evolve and how... Uh, especially if they keep at it like he has in his band, they really just lock into a sound at some point. Like there's just this thing that starts to happen where it all just fuses, it all comes together. And I definitely think that happened on the last record, but I think this record is even more like an encapsulation of like everything that he does. So I think it's like a perfect balance of all of his previous records and he, they have really found their sound and they did it all. They tracked it all mobile. Like that's crazy. They weren't actually in the same rooms together. The drummer tracked it all in California. The uh, Mike Beck, the man who mixed it, he mixed it in New York, young oceans. And like one of the singers is in Nashville. So, I mean, it's just like Taylor Swift's album. Yeah. 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 Um, but better. We've already played. <laughs> we've already played one of the songs. Yeah, right? yeah. We played did. one on Sunday for the second time. Yeah, we've we've been playing "Can't Wait Another Day," which was one of the singles off of the album. It's 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 up there on yeah. like uh, as far as my favorites on the album. It's definitely up there. Yeah, yeah. It's a strong record overall. I, I highly recommend it. One other thing that I really like about it, I've played it numerous times when I sit down to eat with my family. At night, and um, it's a nice record to just have on in the background. It is because it's actually not. Um, it's not overpowering. I'm not, I'm not. Yeah, it's not overpowering. I'm not saying that it's just glorified background music, but I think it's just it creates a nice ambience in the room. But what what I think's interesting about that is that like, there's not often that you think of worship music as being able to be background music yeah, kind of thing. Right. Like, and it, it definitely, I, I totally get what you're saying. We had it on uh, the other day in a similar situation uh, at home. And then I've played it several times uh, just in my office. 
which I normally can't do. Like I normally can't listen to worship music while I'm right. trying to read too, or, or think or, or what have not. So, yeah, man. Um, so that's my per, pick. That's per, my album of percentage the wise, out of how many picks <laughs> you've done, like he's killing it on the JM charts. Young Oceans just taking the cake. Yeah. Do you have any idea what Young Oceans means? Uh, man, I, I read it. I think he explained it one time, and I cannot remember. Do you have any idea? <laughs> I, I don't. Bonus points for any listeners that can find the answer. <laughs> so, Brad, uh, why don't you tell us what we have on the docket for today? I would love to. Yeah, I'm so glad. The, you had this look on your face like you don't know. Like, oh, what are we talking about? Because that would be pretty awkward if the episode was yeah, just you sitting there not being comfortable. Really should have really thought about what this. What percentage of our episode is us talking about what we're going to talk about or pretty whether large. or not we know what we're going pretty to talk about? Pretty large percentage. No, we know. We're confident and we are professionals. So we will continue. Mm. This past Sunday, we continued our series. Family meals that we're doing at Shades that I've loved so far. Jonathan preached on family meals, the means of grace of membership. And during that... that, that uh, to quote you, Brad, that sexy subject of church membership. Sexy subject of church membership. I don't know why I made that joke. Things... <laughs> I get scared every time I hear the word sexy. From from the pulpit? Yeah. Yeah. I start to get uncomfortable. (laughs) That's fair. Well, it was a very great sermon, one could say. And it was on membership. And during the sermon, Jonathan, you quoted a book. Do you want to tell us what book that was? Yeah, sure. So um, I actually ended up quoting at at one point um, from Brett McCracken. Uh, and Brett McCrack is actually not the author of this book. He's the author of a chapter in this book, and it's one that uh, we've been reading together just kind of here and there for a while now. But the, the book is called Our Secular Age, uh, and the subtitle is 10 Years of Reading and Applying Charles Taylor. Uh, it was edited by Consul, uh, Consul, it was edited by Colin Hansen at the Gospel Coalition. But so every chapter is by a different author. And, and basically, here's the deal. Uh, Charles Taylor is a uh, a pretty well known at least within academic circles he's he's well known a uh, catholic philosopher um does a lot of sociology as well as philosophy and and all of that and he has a massive tome i've never read it i i don't own it um <laughs> but he's got a massive tome that's been very influential uh and the title of it's just our secular age or mm-hmm. secular age or something yeah, along those lines secular age. yeah um, and so he's just done a ton of work on secularism and like the rise of secularism and just, just basically like why is the ethos of our culture the way it is? Yeah. You know, uh, what led us here, where are we headed, that that kind of thing. And his work has influenced a lot of evangelical thinkers and uh, they found it to be, I mean, they don't agree with him on every point, obviously, but they found it to be insightful and helpful and so this book basically tries to distill what these authors have found to be helpful from Taylor. And since the three of us don't really have a ton of time to go read Taylor's like... What is it, like 900 pages? It's, it's ridiculous, whatever <laughs> yes. it is, you know, and, and crazy academic, like, you know, thick, heady stuff. We, we don't exactly have time to... I know, I know that everybody thinks that's what we do in our spare time. We just sit exactly. around reading philosophy. Yeah, in our smoking jacket. Oh. <laughs> 
but we thought uh, we thought this could be a good read. And it's been interesting because like some chapters uh, have been okay or whatever, but then there's been other chapters that we found really poignant and really helpful. Yeah. And and chapter seven is the one specifically by Brett McCracken, and the title of the chapter is Church Shopping with Charles Taylor. And I never read anything by Brett McCracken before. I don't know that much about him. I guess I could look at his bio in here. Um, he uh, but he's an Ch- author. Church shopping with Charles Taylor sounds like a really bad reality show. <laughs> <laughs> and here we are with Charles Taylor as he goes church shopping, <laughs> the local town of Albuquerque. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> but um, but I, Brett McCracken, he's a pastor. He's an author. He's written some other stuff. I've never read anything he, he wrote. But the chapter was really really great. And what he's basically doing is he's saying, okay secularism, as Taylor has studied it and framed it, uh, has had a massive effect within uh, Christianity, too, and the way Christians think about themselves and and think about their identity and all these things. And it's had an effect on the relationship between Christians and the church and how we think about belonging to a church or why we belong to a church or what that looks like. And everybody is is pretty familiar with the phrase, church shopping and has a general idea of what that means. And McCracken's argument basically is that that entire concept of church shopping wouldn't exist without the current secular culture in which we find ourselves and the effect that it's had on Christians. Mm. So yeah, so in talking about membership, I found it helpful. A couple of the things he, he had said, I found it helpful to kind of compare and contrast at one point in the message when I was specifically talking about how membership is a means of the church holding us accountable as Christians, um, which it just grates against our kind of grates against our culture. Like in our culture, the individual is the highest authority, and nobody can tell me what to do or what to think or how to act or, or be about anything. Yeah, you know. So the idea that there would be uh, a a, lar- a body larger than myself, the church, that has some kind of authority and can actually hold me accountable like that just just goes completely against the grain of uh of the way we think so yeah so that's basically yeah. a summary of kind of like why i quoted from that and but what we thought would be helpful today uh would be to do what we did several months ago several months ago we had a conversation about a chapter in a different book we were reading called uh compassion and conviction is by uh, Michael Ware and Justin Gibney of the Ann Campaign, and we just spent a whole episode discussing a chapter. And we thought that it might be fun to do the same thing, discuss this chapter, since we all found it so beneficial. And uh, and we also thought this might be a good way of, every now and then, uh, recommending resources to our, our listeners. So yep. I'm, I'm sure JM will probably post a picture of the book when you post the episode, but the yes. once again, the book is called Our Secular Age. It's edited by Colin Hansen, and it's... Uh, and again, every chapter is by a different author. Some of them might make you yawn, um, but others right. of them, but others of them, we have found you to can be, skip around. Yeah, I do that with yeah, books all the time. Yeah, you can skip around. Yeah, I'm guilty. Yeah. Or you can just put it on your bookshelf. It looks really great. <laughs> yeah. And when your friends come over, you can cover. say, does, "Oh, does I'm reading the, about the Roman Catholic philosopher Charles, Charles Taylor right. and his effect on evangelicalism." Right. Yeah. Yeah. So. Anyway, well, but I thought we could just discuss a few more things. No, that's great. Where do you guys want to start? Well, I, I think the easiest place to start um, is just kind of the situation. So McCracken starts out by kind of using Taylor's um, 
baseline definition of what's going on in our culture, of, of what this secular age is, he starts out by using that to kind of set up the situation of how that's affected uh, church culture and led to church shopping, if you will. So, so I'm just going to start by, by reading a quote, and this is actually, that this quote uh, comes out of Taylor's work. Oh, there's the title. Taylor's work is called A Secular Age. A Secular Age. A Secular Age. Yeah, yeah. So, um, and, and kind of one of the, Taylor has his own kind of verbiage and vocabulary that he uses. One of the terms he uses a ton to describe what's at the heart of secularism is expressive individualism. Mm-hmm. Like that's kind of what, what's at the heart and driving it. And so this is him kind of defining what he means by that. So he says this. Emerging from the romantic expressivism of the late 18th century, this attitude of authenticity is that each one of us has his or her own way of realizing our humanity and that it's important to find and live out one's own as against surrendering to conformity with a model imposed on us from the outside by society or the previous generation or religious or political authority. So to be an authentic person, you know, expressive individualism says like I've got to discover myself, find myself, be true to myself and express that, express who I am and who I discover myself to be as an individual. That's where my identity is going to come from. That's where I'm going to be an authentic and, and truly most human versus the idea of I'm given an identity from the outside that I'm to live up to or into, whether that's from the previous generation, whether that's from society as a whole, or from a religious institution. Um, yeah. So, so that's kind of the idea, and what what uh, Taylor's going to argue lies at the heart of secularism is this idea of expressive individualism. Mm-hmm. Because actually, any authority given to you from the outside is something that you need to shed to be your authentic self or to find your true self or to experience human flourishing. Right. And I mean, you can see this idea and this concept everywhere. So just think about like the cartoons you watched as a kid, you know, like what, what were kind of like the big driving dramatic themes, you know? So, um, Aladdin, uh, shed the tradition of the law, right? You know, so that I can marry who I want to marry for love kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, or uh, uh, Moana, uh, yeah, I gotta like go on this adventure to like find myself and who I am and it's it's different and distinct from my, my tribe and my people that I've been a part of or, you know, a, a lot of these things are about like finding who you are. Being true to yourself. Yes, yeah, yeah. Like, yeah. I mean, follow your heart. Right. Like yeah. just even that kind of like refrain or whatever. And and it's not, you know, hear me, it's it's not that we're saying like, oh my goodness, all of these things are horrid, wicked ideas that should have no place in your thought pattern or what have not. But but what Taylor's arguing is that this has become like the baseline measurement of you being authentic, true living into who you're supposed to be kind of idea that that's the individual yeah now trumps everything and and so i just mentioned cartoons but we see this play out in bigger ways as well too so i mean 
I, th- I think one of the obvious things to talk about within our society is like the the way that sexuality and gender is being talked about, right? Sure. You know, um, like nothing from the outside can be the ultimate determining factor of my sexuality or even my gender. Like not even biology, not DNA, like nothing. You know, um, it's it, that's kind of like the uh, w- one of the ultimate expressions of like expressive individualism. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so yeah, and so, and it's kind of the highest value. Yeah, individual freedom, individual expression, being true to yourself seems to be the highest value around our culture that we all hold to. Right, and and what and and don't get me wrong, I I like valuing the individual just as much as the next person. I mean, right. I am a product of Western American culture. Right. Individual my, rights, individual yeah, freedom. Right. Yeah, all of right. those things. But as Christians, like I do think it is really important for us to note things like uh, the darkest book in the Bible um, is the book of Judges. And the theme in the book of Judges is in those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Mm-hmm. Like the idea of like moral relativism, every you do you, live your right. truth kind of thing. Like the Bible says, yeah, that's the theme of like our darkest book. <laughs> like, you know, whereas we would be like chief value. Right. <laughs> you know, so um so I mean, we've got to as Christians, like at least feel the tension of that, yeah, and and ask some really hard questions of ourselves, of like how does you know, yeah, we value the individual for sure, but but what are the ways that we have come to think of ourselves as as individuals or, or celebrate individualism that that grate against our faith and and what it has to say about us and our identity. And yeah. and the call on us. Well, it's like you said, we're a product of the culture that we're in. I think so often in the church, and I fall into this trap a lot. We talk about the culture like it's something out there, yeah, separate from us. Sure, and or it's like a, a river, and we're standing beside the river, like looking at the stream and being like, "Oh, well, look at that!" and "Look at that!" and it's like, no, rather. We're in the river. We're yeah. <laughs> we're swimming in the river. And so what Taylor's work can do helpfully is kind of give you the lenses to be able to see what's actually going on, how you're actually living your life, how you've embodied some of these belief systems, some of these values that you don't even realize, um, but you've just kind of drunk as being a, a part of the culture. Yeah. Yeah. Reading something like Taylor's work is is like being a fish and someone's describing to you what water is. You know, it's like, it's like, does a fish even know what water is and what it's like? You know, does a fish know it's in water? You know, I mean, that's just what it's in. Right. You know, right. Um, right. And so yeah, that's yeah. why, that's why things like this, I think can be helpful. And so what McCracken does is he takes that and begins to apply it to our faith. And that's where it really, I think begins to get helpful for us as believers. So to read you, this is, this is McCracken, uh, now and he's talking about this 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 perspective of expressive individualism. How does that affect our faith? He says this: this perspective fundamentally alters the role of faith in an individual's life. Faith becomes just another expression of identity that can be curated and enacted according to personal tastes and preferences, and not according to any obligation or external expectation. 
So you, you see what McCracken's doing there is he's saying, you know, when we've just kind of imbibed this is what it means to be our true, authentic selves, then and that that creeps its way into our faith, it's like, well, then you're going to resist any external source that will try to correct anything that you think should be right according to your faith, whether that's the church or whether that's the Bible itself. Like, mm. you're actually going to begin to try to shape the Bible to fit your preconceived notions of what you think is most authentic and right for you to believe and, and practice your faith. And you're going to do that to your church as well. Mm. Well, you can see how this naturally leads to the idea of church shopping. Yeah. Kind of the why behind church shopping, yeah. which is a really interesting question. Yeah. Yeah. It just, it, it, it becomes this, I need to find that place that matches with me and best expresses my personal faith. Think of it. I mean, we use the word shopping, right? Because think of it like clothes shopping. What are you looking for when you clothes shop? Why this shirt and not that one? Why these pants and not those? Like you're looking for what you feel expresses best who you are. Mm -hmm. You know, you like the way you look in that the best. You know, it, it it's this brand reflects what you value, this style reflects what you whatever. So the same thing with a church. Like, and that's that's what McCracken means by it becomes just another expression of identity that can be curated and enacted. Um, but nor to continue your analogy, normally you can't find all the clothes that you want from just one store. Right. Right. <laughs> you gotta shop around. You a get little your bit. jeans from one place, get but, your shoes somewhere else. But you don't like the shirts that, you know, where you got your jeans at. So you go to a different place and you get the shirt different yeah. place with the shoes and you're able to kind of construct your outfit from all these different places. Right. But, but to commit to one store, <laughs> if right. you will, right. it would be problematic. Because it would be limiting. It would be limiting to your expression, yeah. Yeah, and it, I mean, you know, nobody wants to be the mannequin. The mannequin's wearing all the same brands, you know. They're, <laughs> they're, they're limited and lifeless over there, right? So, yeah, 100%. Um, And I... Well, I was going to go ahead. I was going to read the quote that you quoted from on Sunday. Okay, if that's okay. Just yeah, to yeah, say yeah. It yeah. I, I probably was going to say it again. I think this is it, right? When church going becomes mostly about finding the church that best supports one own one's own subjective spiritual path, Taylor seems to suggest it will eventually become an impossible task, more frustrating and draining than it's than it is worth. As he notes, if the focus is going now to be on my spiritual path, thus on what insights come to me in the subtler languages that I find meaningful, then maintaining this or any other framework becomes increasingly difficult. Why? Because no church is ever going to be perfectly tailored, no pun intended there, to <laughs> my preferences and the subtler, subtler languages excuse me, I find meaningful. Something will always make me bristle. Something will leave me feeling unseen, unheard, uncomfortable. Just as I, just as we eventually grow tired of a trendy restaurant or favorite clothing brand because our tastes inevitably change, so we will inevitably, or excuse me, eventually tire of a church that initially connects with our unique spiritual path, but then fails to sufficiently track with our evolving beliefs. So we sh keep shopping for that perfect fit. <laughs> Yep. Yep. I mean, I've just to confess, I've totally done that. 
right yeah, before. Me too. Me too, for sure. Right. Well, I think another helpful analogy for this um, can be social media. Um, so I've uh, I've talked with people before about one of the most interesting phenomenons to me of social media is the idea that we are able more than ever to see into one another's lives. And yet we actually probably know one another less than ever, at least authentically, because what we put forward on social media is curated. Mm-hmm. Like we are choosing very carefully what we're sharing versus what we're not sharing. And we only share what we want to be associated with ourselves and what we want to be perceived as. So even if you're sharing things that are, uh, you know, hard or difficult or whatever, like you want people to know you as vulnerable. You want people to know, like it's, it's curated in, in that way. Um, and so in a way, social media is like one of the ultimate expressive individualism platforms. You know, it gives me this place where I can literally create exactly what I want you to see. Yeah. And church shopping, you know, it's a helpful analogy to church shopping because that's how we use our churches as well. So I, mm-hmm. if I want you to see me as cool and trendy and with the times or whatever, then I go to the cool and trendy church. If I want you to see me as okay with drinking, I go to the church that's okay with drinking. <laughs> if I want you to see me as, you know, um, very sophisticated and and academic, I go to a church with other sophisticated people. Or like, like mm-hmm. the church I choose becomes more about expressing something about me. Yeah. Yeah. You, you get what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. And what Taylor was saying right there that I think is just right on point is that's an ever evolving thing. It won't last. Right. You mm-hmm. know, wh- what I want to express about myself now is not what it was when I was 20, nor what it was when I was 13. Yep. Mm-hmm. And and the same thing happens with regards to, you know, uh your church experience. You may what initially connects with you, like he said, great. You know, right. and, you, and you like that and expressing that thing, but that changes over time. And so it'll lead you to shop for the, the next thing. Yeah. And we live in a culture and I mean, specifically Birmingham, Alabama, where there are a ton of options yeah. <laughs> before of churches. You. Yeah. And maybe when you go on social media, you see someone else post about a church and you go, oh, well, they're doing this and my church doesn't do that. And, oh, I kind of look at the community at that church and, well, my community I feel like is lacking whatever it may be. And so you can begin to say, well, maybe I need to check that out. And then it can just be this endless cycle. And there are so many options <laughs> that it it's endless. Right. And it's – I don't want to say that while we in the, the – blah, while we in the church do talk neg- negatively about church shopping – Going to several churches in a in a community isn't something that's unheard of in kind of broader Christian culture. Right. If you if if you get what I'm saying by that, um, to go to a city and to be at one church for 30 years is not the norm in a lot of ways. Right. Right. Yeah. No. And, and that's something that has shifted. I think just along with our. Our cultural shift, you know, something that's interesting to me about the uh, the quote that you read just a second ago, Brad, is it, it it makes me think of Bonhoeffer. 
So mm-hmm. there's a there's a Bonhoeffer quote that I'm sure we've probably already talked about on here. It's one of the things that gets quoted the most from Bonhoeffer. But it's where he talks about people having this dream vision of Christian community. Ah, uh, yeah. Um, and that, you know, if you love your idea of Christian community more than the actual community that exists, you'll you'll end up destroying both. You'll, right. you'll be harmful to both. It feels like this is taking that same idea from Bonhoeffer, but flipping it from the effect that it has on the community to the effect that it has on the individual. Mm. You know, that if you've mm-hmm. got this dream or this type of community you want to be associated with you, like this is ultimately going to be wearying and tiring on you because you're never going to find that community. Right. Um, right. And you're, you're ultimately going to give up that that search. Right. Yes. You know, so I think, you know, that that kind of lays out the groundwork for the situation that we currently find ourselves in just uh, with church shopping culture, if you will. And and let me, let me give one quick caveat before I keep going right here. Um, we are not saying that when you move to a new city, you shouldn't like look at a couple of different churches. I wouldn't classify that in and of itself is, is church shopping. Church right. shopping is more the notion of this continual looking for the next best thing. It's a pattern yeah. of church involvement yeah, for over sure. time. And I think it depends on what your intention is too. Like what is your intention on finding a church? Yeah. And there are reasons to leave a church. Uh, I don't think there are nearly right. as many as we usually tend to make up. Um, you know, mm-hmm. heresy is a reason to leave a church. Yes. <laughs> you know, yeah. Those kinds of things. Um, but uh but yeah. So so this is kind of the current situation and what McCracken goes on to do in this chapter is to then contrast that with what scripture actually calls us to with regard to our involvement in church community. So if scripture isn't calling us, you know, scripture doesn't call us to, to church shopping. So what does it it call us to? And I think I think a good way to start, I'll start with this uh this quote right here. Um he says, uh, Christianity requires the submission of one's individual will to the lordship of Christ. It's impossible to, so I, I read this on Sunday, it's impossible to simultaneously assert the sovereignty of one's subjective spiritual path and the supremacy of Christ. Like, you hear what he's saying right there? He, he's saying, like, you can't say, like, my subjective spiritual path, where I'm going, like, that is the ultimate, my expressive individualism as far as my faith goes, that is the ultimate authority and Jesus is also the ultimate authority. Like that that contradicts one another. It doesn't it doesn't work. And so the question becomes if Jesus is the ultimate authority in your life, how is he getting to exercise that ultimate authority? And I think the argument that McCracken makes is he does it through scripture and he does it through the local church. Mm. So he says um we are either in Christ on his terms and by his grace, or we aren't. Christianity doesn't work on the terms of consumerism. Jesus calls his followers not to comfort and convenience, but to deny themselves and to take up their cross. Christian discipleship is not consumer-friendly. Further, Jesus calls us not to individualized, self-styled spirituality, but to faith in community, accountable to others. Christianity disembedded from the church is not really Christianity. It feigns to embrace Jesus while shunning his body. Mm-hmm. Yeah, what God has joined together, let not man separate. 
words that Jesus spoke about marriage, marriage which is meant to point to the union between Christ and his bride. And a lot of people want to separate what God has joined together, Christ and his bride. A lot of people want to perform a divorce right there and say, I get Jesus, but I can divorce him from his bride. And McCracken right here is saying what the Bible says. No, you can't. You can't do that. Um, Jesus and his bride, they they go together. And just the entire shape of the gospel call on one's life just grates against the idea of myself and my expressive individualism getting to be the ultimate authority. Um, no, we're called to deny ourselves. We're called to die to self. We're called to take up our cross. We're called to follow after one who's going before us. We are given an identity in Christ that we are to be conformed to and live into and to be transformed into by the work of the Holy Spirit. So like it just, all of it just grates against that notion. And when you bring the local church into the picture, I think the quintessential way it grates against this notion, and this is what I used McCracken's quotes to talk about on Sunday, is that the church has the authority in my life in y'all's lives and the lives of all of its members to correct our spiritual path, to correct us when we go astray, to call us back to the truth of the gospel, to exercise an authority and an accountability uh, over us. So the comparison I would make here is imagine growing up as a kid um, and every time your parents tried to hold you accountable or call you on the carpet for your behavior or whatever, um, you were like, bump y'all, I'll just get a different family. And you could family shop. Like, you could just go around and try this family and try that family and, and go to eat. Like, you would literally be able to do whatever you wanted to do. You would shape your life. Like, you'd find, I want the parents that will let me throw the party at the house, so I'll go find them. Or I want the parents to let me do sleepovers or whatever, blah, blah, I want the parents that let me, you know, I, I don't know, just name it. Mm. Play video games all day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and you just... Uh, Is that personal, John Mark? Is that yeah, I don't know if, from- if people are learning more about us right now. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, but yeah, accountability becomes an impossibility. It, and And really, you don't actually have any parents in your life. You have the illusion that there's an authority, or you're giving off the illusion that there's an authority in your life, but there's really not. Mm. Well, the same thing happens with church shopping. I, I kind of belong to this church. I give off the illusion that I'm a member of this church and there's an authority in my life, but the moment they correct me or warn me or whatever or hold me accountable in a way that I don't like, I run to a different church family. Mm. You know, um, and And yeah, and so it just... It, it makes this this entire notion grates against what the church is supposed to be, what the church is supposed to do, um, and and grates against the life of discipleship. Mm. It's interesting as you were talking uh, a graduation speech by the I think he's a journalist David Brooks came to mind. It's become a very famous speech where he's talking to these graduates and he's basically telling them that right now you see freedom is having limitless options before you. He says, as you get old, older, you will actually see that the limit, not the limitations, but the boundaries that come in your life will actually um, bring freedom and joy for you. 
And so, you know, graduating college, oh, I can marry anyone. There's such a freedom that comes with that. Um, but there's a, a freedom and joy that comes with, I've chosen Jordan to be my wife. Or I have landed at this job, this vocation. Or I have landed at this church. And so our secular age wants to tell us that freedom and joy in life comes from not having any sort of outside authority that can shape your life. But the scriptures actually give an alternative picture that say that true freedom and joy come when you are um, living towards that which you were created for, in which there are boundaries that guide and direct because you were created for a purpose. You were created to live in the context of a community where others can speak into your life. And so that kind of rewiring is an ongoing task of discipleship in which we have to tell ourselves that to be an individual is to actually lead away from my human flourishing and to actually limit my freedom. And true freedom is found outside myself. Yeah, one of the most helpful illustrations I've heard, and I don't remember where I heard it, but was someone talked about, they, they were given an illustration about true freedom. And they they said, you know, the guy who jumps out of a plane with no parachute or anything, is he free? And they're like, he may think so, and he may experience that as freedom for a little bit, but he is a slave to his own destruction. Mm. He can't stop it, and it's coming. And and the entire idea there is, so the parachute may feel like a rule and a limitation, and whatever, but it's what actually grants you freedom to experience the joy mm. in the way that, the only way that you can, mm-hmm. in its truest sense. And so, like, the idea, you know, a comparison there being, like, uh, sleeping around with whoever I want to versus getting married or something like that. You know, um, I may have the illusion that what I'm experiencing is true freedom and all this, but but... God's word says this will ultimately lead to destruction and we know it will destroy intimacy. We know it can destroy so many different things. Yeah. And actually within uh, marriage as God has designed it in a covenant relationship is where I actually will ultimately discover when, when pursued in God's way, the, the, uh, the depths of intimacy that's, right. that's there. Totally. So that was, I don't know. It, it, it was, it was helpful for me just in thinking through, I, I guess the illusion of freedom. Yes, yes. Well, and so, oh, go ahead, John Mark. This is sort of a silly example, but I was, as I was hearing you talk about that, I was reminded of <clears throat> this interview that I heard. I'm a big Metallica fan. <laughs> You've never and, talked about that on here before. <laughs> I didn't know Metallica um, they were Christians. That's great. <laughs> they're not Christians. So this is like a secular example, but I think I think it, uh, it it's, plays. It's appropriate. We're, we're talking about, about our secular age. Yeah, yeah and... The lead singer, uh, you know, is an alcoholic. He's he's uh, he's he's been he's been to rehab. He's been to treatment and all this stuff, and he's been sober for a while now. But he, I heard him talk a lot about his past before he like came to terms with his alcoholism and came to terms with like the life that he was living out on the road, and uh, and he and he was married and and had kids and all this stuff. And it's pretty amazing because, you know, even somebody like that who kind of lives like a wild rock and roll secular lifestyle basically came to the conclusion that he was like, I was out on the road every night. I was doing this and that. And I realized that what I thought was going to be 
like all this freedom actually just turned into I just kind of built my own prison essentially and mm-hmm. it and it what I thought was going to be unique and interesting every night actually turned into the same thing and what I find to be more exciting is having children and being at home with my family and kind of having a sense of community in that way mm-hmm. as opposed to like him like chasing all these other things so i don't know that Hmm. that that came to mind i I do think that rings true but the prison of freedom is that your your book that you're gonna write right (laughs) john mark just made a million dollars creed my own prison (laughs) that's actually what came to mind when you when you said created my own prison kind of thing i just started singing it in my head over here child of the 90s um but yeah, and so like bringing it back around to uh, McCracken and, and church membership and, and all of those things we've been talking about, I think that this quote is is rather poignant right here. This was one that I actually wanted to uh, read on, on Sunday but didn't have time for. It says, uh, when a church becomes less about the demands of Scripture on individuals— and more about the demands of individuals on the church to fit their preferences. Boom. So in other words, you know, when, like he's saying like the, like what the church is supposed to do is it's supposed to disciple you and me and, and, and caveat. Um, <laughs> I just want to say like with all of this stuff we're talking about and with everything that I said on Sunday as well, like, it's not like, we're church leaders and I'm a church leader and we're speaking to everybody else about this is what the church is supposed to <laughs> right. be in your life. Right. I may be a pastor, but I'm I'm also a member of Shades Valley Community Church. This is what the church is to be in my life. The other pastors here hold me accountable and I'm responsible to them. Yeah. Like like this is true for everyone yeah. who is a part of the church. Yeah. I mean we operate with a plurality of elders here. Right. And right. so that means at times that everyone in this room has to submit to the elders. Yes. And there are times that we have disagreed with the elders. I mean, <laughs> we've had to submit. It's true. And I'm not going to call out Jeff Stalk. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> but yes, totally. Oh. But yeah, so so when it's I, a challenging word for us as well. Right. So when so when when we don't see the church as that in our life, like it's here to help me understand scripture and to help hold me accountable to what to, to life as God has designed it, as he's called me to live it as a, as a Christian, when I don't see it as that, but I see the church as being about my demands on it to, to be shaped how I think it should. So to meet my individual kind of felt needs things. When a church becomes less about the demands of scripture on individuals and more about the demands of individuals on the church to fit their preferences, favored music style, ideal sermon length, brand of coffee, and so on, it loses its power to transform us and subvert our idols. It becomes a commodity to be shopped for, consumed, and then abandoned when another shinier, trendier, more relevant option appears. Mm. Ouch. Well, I think he points out so well in the chapter how churches have a temptation to accommodate to this expressive individualism. Yeah, 100%. To where the church has realized the game, if you will, and end up uh, marketing, communicating themselves, or structuring themselves in a way that accommodates to this expressive individualism. And I know there's ways that we've done it, it shades, without even realizing it. Sure. Sure. And so it's constantly something to to be thinking through, and and it's definitely challenging. So this is a a call and a challenge to churches, as well as, as individuals. 
Yeah. Well, and I, and I think that that takes us into the, the final thing that I, I kind of wanted to talk about. And that's like, what can the church do? So we find ourselves in this situation where just our secular culture has, has definitely influenced the way all of us think. And it's influenced the way we think towards the church, you know. And so rather than the church uh, genuflecting to that and just becoming good word, good word. and just becoming like, hey, I, you know, you say we're a commodity, so we'll be a commodity and a, a provider of services and all that because we need to, you know, keep some people in here so we can all keep our jobs kind of thing. Like, what, what can the church do? Because if you do that, ultimately you're going to lose being the church. You know, that's uh, McCracken gives an example of like a sport like baseball or, or something like that. He's like, sure, the sport's going to change a little bit here and there throughout, you know, time. But if you if you're just willing to do anything and make any change in order to attract any number of fans, eventually you're going to reach a point where you're no longer even playing the sport, mm. you know. And, and that's what will happen with the church as well. Like if, if the goal is is no longer discipling people but just simply attracting them and keeping them in the door by whatever means necessary, at, right. at some point you've lost the thing altogether that you were yeah. claiming to be and trying to be. Only fastballs. <laughs> that would make it a lot more interesting, that's for sure. Yeah. But maybe we've lost the integrity of the game. Right. Right. So, so yeah, so that question, like, well, what, what can we do? And uh, I'm going to read uh, a quote from my, my this is my final quote that I have from McCracken. And then I've got a few things to say and you guys can add however you want. But he says it's crucial for church and ministry leaders in a secular age to challenge themselves and their congregations to break out of expressive individualist of an expressive individualist approach to faith. Uh, it's a path to spiritual exhaustion and eventual death. Spiritual vitality, on the other hand, comes from embracing the necessity of being embedded within a larger structure, a church that provides support and accountability and draws us away from the dead-end prison of accountable-to-only-me spirituality. There you go, John Mark. that prison There's word that prison again. Thing prison, again. yeah. It's, it's your book. Your book's waiting to be written over there. <laughs> So, so basically what he says is like, what can the, the church do, you know, to try and, and help us as a church and help congregants like break out of this? He says spiritual vitality comes from embracing the necessity of being embedded within a larger structure. So what does that look like? Okay, that's, that's what I want to talk about. I've got three things, past, present, future. How do we anchor ourselves within a larger structure? One, the past. Uh, I think one thing we can do is to anchor ourselves in history. In church history, we are a part of something much larger than ourselves temporally. The church, you know, has been around for 2,000 years. A lot of people have thought about faith and church life and, and all of this scripture way longer than we have. And this is where anchoring ourselves in church history can be really, really helpful. Um, uh, attaching ourselves to those who've gone before us will and, and making ourselves accountable to those mm. who've gone before us. Um, I think can really, really help us to break out of this pattern. Mm. So the past, uh, the present, how can we try and uh, embed ourselves within a larger structure in the present? I think by taking church membership seriously. Uh, this is what we talked about on Sunday. If you weren't here, you can go listen to the podcast to get all the, the details of that. But I, I think that we as Shades Valley and 
us as pastors and, and elders, like, like we have a long way to go in properly practicing church membership. It's not something you can just flip a switch on. It's not mm-hmm. like you can just say, hey, church membership means we all need to hold each other accountable. Yay, go. Like, I mean, it takes time to learn what that looks like, what that means to be able to do it properly. Um, it takes courage. It takes love. It takes all of those things. But I do think that that's something we are pursuing to do more faithfully is to take uh, being a member more seriously. And that's a way that we can embed ourselves within this larger structure. Mm. Yeah. Um, so well, just a ahead. comment on that. I was yeah, going to yeah. say, uh, this is obviously a longer conversation that we're not going to be able to have today. But I mean, I don't know what comes into your mind when you hear church discipline or placing yourself under the authority of the elders or being accountable to someone else. But the image is not a bunch of elders in a room with black robes and wigs on and you coming before a tribunal that documents your sins before you and urges you to repent or else you will be expelled from the community. That was the image that, I had. That's only happened to me once at Shades. It's only happened one time. Um, but when I think of when I think of my experiences at Shades, I think of a shepherd right. coming and uh, tending to the sheep, asking a church member, "How are you doing? Yeah, what's going on? How can we?" we help. And I think of that tenderness and that love and that compassion. Jonathan, you talked about um, church leadership, loving the church like Christ loved the church. Christ loved the church by dying for the church, by giving his life. That is what church leadership is to do, not in a domineering, charismatic, loud, boisterous way that our culture, our secular culture tends to value in leadership, but rather in a humble, gentle, meek, compassionate way. And so I think that's important when we talk about these things because we can kind of have an image of authority that isn't biblical, but is rather kind of more cultural, if you will. Yeah, I mean, there's a reason that the church has latched on to, like throughout history, has latched on to the word pastor, right? Mm, Yeah. I mean, the word pastor comes from the Latin and it literally means shepherd. Yeah. Like if we were going to put it in English, that's that's what it is. You know, it's a it's a shepherd. So so that's the image, and that is an image that's not just a New Testament image. That's an Old Testament image. The quintessential king of Israel was David, who was first a shepherd. Even if you go back before that, who did God choose to lead his people out of Israel? Moses, who was a shepherd. Mm-hmm. Like God is constantly choosing people who were first trained as shepherds to then shepherd his people. Mm-hmm. And when Jesus, the great shepherd, is born, who's the first that gets the news and gets to hear about it? It's it's shepherds. Like mm. like this is sending a message about priority here, yeah. right? Yeah. So so yeah. I, so when I think of like, you know, church discipline or, or accountability, like we're talking about, think in those shepherding and in the, in the flock terms. Think Luke fifteen. Yeah. The shepherd who leaves the ninety nine to go find the one and to carry it back. You know, like that, that's what's supposed to be happening here. The shepherd's job is to protect and to love the sheep. And that includes trying to bring them back when they have strayed. Yeah, that's good. You know, so that'll preach. So, yeah. So in the present, you know, uh, pursuing uh, active, you know, church membership. Uh, and then as far as the future, um, simple discipleship. Uh, you know, we you just mentioned church discipline. Discipline is the root 
of the word discipleship. Mm. You know, to pursue discipleship is to pursue discipline. We tend to only think of discipline in negative terms, but it actually has a negative and a positive connotation. You get the positive connotation when you talk about people's vocations or education. So, Brad, you are mm-hmm. pursuing the discipline of counseling. You know, yeah. um, it, it, discipline has a positive meaning in that you're pursuing a particular path. The negative meaning is when you stray from that path, being corrected, disciplined, brought back into the right, the right path. This is what discipleship is. Mm-hmm. Like discipleship is being shown the path. And brought back to the path. It's yeah. it's a practice of ongoing discipline in our lives. And so what I mean is when I say in the future pursuing simple discipleship is think of all the things we think that the church is supposed to be, supposed to do, supposed to offer. A lot of times we immediately go into a consumeristic mindset of commodities and services. Mm-hmm. Church is supposed to offer all these services, all these events, all these whatever. And there's a place, there's a place for social events and for community building and and all of those things. But thinking, what is our primary task? Our primary task is simply discipleship. Mm. It's trying to help shepherd and and letting that be the ballast that guides the way forward. Mm -hmm. I think that all of these things are are, are things that we can do as a church to help um, combat the... uh, negative effects expressive individualism has had on our faith and to mm. foster a more vibrant, healthy, uh, truly Christian, gospel-centered spirituality. Yes, yes. Well, and as you were talking, just two quick thoughts came to mind. One is that we talked at the beginning about constructing an identity and how in Jesus Christ we're given an identity. Mm. We are justified. We are made right before God. We are sons and daughters. We are adopted into the family of God. We're members of the kingdom of God. We're, we're saints. And that it is in that secure identity that we are caught up in the rhythms of grace and go on this path of discipleship, not to construct an identity, but rather to live out the identity that we've been given in the arena that God has called us to. And can I just say for me personally how much relief that gives me? Totally. Like talking about freedom, like you were talking yeah. about earlier, John Mark, you know, and freedom being found in kind of those limitations. Like the idea that I don't bear the weight of figuring out who I am, who I'm supposed to be, and, and, and you know, all of that. No, like that's a created given. I've yes. been given this identity in Christ and I live into that. Like it just, yes. it, it, bur- it lifts a weight totally from me and I feel free. It's for freedom that Christ has set us free. Mm. Right. Yes. And, and I, I feel this freedom to live into who I was created to be. We talked earlier about expressive individualism is this idea that I've got to discover what it means for me to be truly authentically human. Christianity says Jesus has revealed what it means to be truly authentically human. Mm, yeah. And you are given a new identity in him and you live into that identity. You don't have to figure it out. You don't have to figure out what it means to be truly human. Jesus has shown you live into that. Like that just like I just I sigh. Yes. Like oh, totally exhale. Praise God. Sorry, I interrupted. No, totally. You said you had two things. <laughs> I did. And as you were talking, I forgot my second point. <laughs> But I, I have remembered it. Um, the second point was, as members of Shades Valley, we affirm our statement of faith. We affirm 
uh, a set of beliefs. We affirm how we're going to live in this community together. But within that, there is room for uniqueness. And it's almost like those statements of faith, these boundaries that we've set ourselves within are a field that we then can play ball on, (laughs) to use that analogy. And that as the body of Christ, we do bring unique pieces. And there are, as individuals, we do contribute and can uh, together um, each with our own giftings and backgrounds and interest can build up the body. And so right. there is some room for individualism, but that individualism is within the context yes. of a body, of a covenant, of a commitment in which we do place, our, uh, place ourselves under authority, in which we do have boundaries, in which we do submit to others. And that's where flourishing can happen. Yeah. Unity doesn't mean uniformity. Right. Yeah. Yes. Uh, to to play off your illustration of playing ball there, like like it's the idea of a a football team has got to be unified to stick right. and win the game. But right. but they're not uniform. You have not everybody's a quarterback. Not everybody's a lineman. Not every like you wouldn't be able to play the game. Exactly. Everybody, no matter their unique position, has got to play in bounds. Right. You know, you get out of bounds and you're not playing football anymore. You know, so I think all of that is helpful for us thinking about, you know, so Orthodox Christianity. Yes, it has its boundaries that Mm -hmm. if you get outside it, you're not playing, you know, you're not participating in Christianity anymore. Yep. But within those bounds is this beautiful thing called the church that is full of crazy, distinct and unique individuals who are united. Right. But definitely not uniform. Right. Totally. So, yeah. yeah. No, I think that that's that's a very important point to make and to retain. Mm. So, well, I think we solved it. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> I think so as well. Sorry, I've been in and out. My son Moses is here with me again this week, and uh, so I've been in and out a lot. But I, I thought the conversation was very helpful. And if you enjoyed the conversation, please go search for this book that we've been talking about. It's called Our Secular Age. 10 Years of Reading and Applying Charles Taylor. It's edited by Colin Hansen. There are a number of great chapters in here. Um, Derek Rishmawi, is that Correct, how you say yeah. his name? He wrote a chapter in here. Alistair Roberts, um, Alan Noble, Mike Cosper. Uh, we've read some of his work before. So please uh, check out that book if you enjoyed this. And uh, if you do get it and read it, let us know what you think of it. Yeah. I think we're going to do more of these episodes, too. I think this will be a re reoccurring. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah. like the Meet a Member stuff. We'll have to, yeah, we'll totally. have to get a cool name for this. Yeah, I, I don't know what Shades on the Shelf, Shades right. Off the Shelf, Shades from Shade the Shelf. shelf. From the, I don't know. Shady Shelves. <laughs> that one's risky. <laughs> yeah. We'll have to think about that. We'll, we'll have, have to, to get our marketing it. team on that. Oh, yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. Get on that, y'all. <laughs> and maybe there's some books that you've read that you would like us to check out or discuss on an episode. So please send that into midweek at Chase Valley. Yeah, cool. JM promises to read them. Yes. I make, yeah, I make, I'll, I'll I make no them. promises. My, my to read shelf is so ridiculous right now. So we will, we will read that. and respond within a day or two. Oh my God. <laughs> that's a guarantee. John, Mark and Brad have promised to read your submissions. I, I send my regrets. <laughs> Awesome. So, um, 
And we're continuing our uh, service or our, our series, Family Meal. So what's what's next? You don't have to give us like a, a snapshot, yeah, yeah. but just kind of tell us what's what's up coming up next. So for the next couple of weeks, so like between now and Ash Wednesday, actually, uh, to finish out the series, we're going to be looking at the, the actual meals, if you will, if you will, like like what are the specific things in the context of corporate worship? We're obviously not going to exhaust everything, sure. But but what are the specific things, kind of the main things that that God has given us as a means to feed our faith? And so we're going to start at the heart of it all uh, this week, which is the Word. So we spend time in the Word every time we gather together. We preach the Word, we read the Word. So how is that? Um, uh, feeding our faith to help us persevere. How's that providing power for the perseverance of your faith? And and I want to try uh, as we as we do this to get as nitty gritty as possible. Um, with uh, so for instance, I hope this Sunday to talk about like when you come to this family meal to worship, uh, when we dig into the Word, like what should you be doing in order to be, you know, to to keep with the meal analogy, eating this meal. How do how do you how do you eat a sermon, basically? You know? Eat this sermon, right? That's yeah, your book yeah. title. Yeah, there you go. Like, how, how do you do that? So I hope to get into some of that. So we're going to talk uh, in the coming weeks about uh, the word. We're going to talk about uh, prayer. We're going to talk about praise, or specifically like worship through song. And we're going to talk about uh, communion. Awesome. So all of those things is means of grace to to feed our faith. Two things I wanted to mention before we go. If you're listening to this episode this week, we have our annual meeting coming up this Sunday, January 31st. Uh, This is for members only, and it happens immediately following the Sunday morning service. There will be an email that is sent out on Saturday that will have the live stream link because if you can't join us uh, physically in the building and you want to join us via live stream, you will be able to do so. That link and all of that information will come in an email this Saturday. So be on the lookout for that, please. Yeah, if, you, if you're if you like, I don't get the emails from Shades, go to shadesvalley.org right now, yeah. scroll to the bottom, and you can sign up for, for our emails. It's real simple. All you have to do is enter your email address, hit enter, and you will be subscribed. Very simple. The second thing is... Last week, we sent out an email, speaking of the emails, with a list of uh, all of our groups uh, for this semester. You can see all those groups if you go to shadesvalley.org. There's a tab called Community. Uh, You can click on see the full list of groups there if you didn't receive the email and see if there's a one you would like to join. Yeah, and, and those are meeting in different formats. There are some that meet in person. There are some that meet digitally, I think. And and so, you know, there there's a smorgasbord of options after we just railed against shopping around. (laughs) (laughs) So find what suits you best. So shop around. (laughs) You don't like those people? Maybe you like these people. (laughs) Well, I think that's the perfect way to end. Brad, you want to sign us off? Thank you all for listening. This has been another episode of Shaking.